Welcome to the Sui Generis Show, your unique perspective on all things related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, your weekly dose of civil rights and criminal injustice system news, we're looking at the rampant death in America's jail systems. Danny Masterson's case will proceed to trial and more information comes out in the Breonna Taylor case. In segment two, as promised, we'll be discussing the trial tax, the attack on the accused Sixth Amendment right to a trial in America. To be sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube, and follow us on our social media channels. Give us a like and subscribe. If there's a subject that you want to hear about, make sure you let us know in the comments. And look to tlobj.com for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week, Reuters News Service released part one of an in-depth study on America's jails and how 4,900 people have died without ever getting their day in court. I did see that, and I can't tell you how disappointing and sad that makes me. I, I'm curious how this could have possibly happened. How was this study conducted, Brian? So Reuters pulled public records and requested data from government agencies regarding fatalities in state jail systems. Now, there, this information is aggregated by the United States government, but those records are uh, not available to the public. So Reuters had to go on a jail-by-jail -jail basis to gather this information. What they discovered was shocking. 7,500 inmate deaths recorded in 500 U.S. jails from 2008 to 2019. At least two-thirds of those inmates who died, nearly 5,000 people, were never convicted of the charges on which they were being held. Now, as part of the report, Reuters said that they looked at all 50 states, including Ohio, and listed the jails surveyed and the criteria for counting death in their mortality survey. The findings for Ohio were shocking, Erica. Let's definitely drill down on this more, Brian. I mean, I'm curious as to what the causes of death were for so many people. It's, it's, it sounds like it could be that either they just didn't get a trial for a long time or that everyone's offing themselves or, I mean, I don't, I don't know, getting sick. I mean, right now we're, we're in COVID times. Um, but this sounds like we're talking about a study over a greater length of time than just recently. Yeah, the study covers about a 10-year, 11-year period of time. Now, it's important to note that it seems that Reuters did not look at every single jail in the United States. Particularly with regards to Ohio, they only looked at 10 jails, serving an average inmate population of 9,700 individuals. Now, these were the 10 largest jails in the state of Ohio, as well as a jail with an average inmate population of 750 or more. So what they looked at specifically with regards to Ohio was Butler County, which is the Cincinnati area, Cuyahoga County, which is Cleveland, Franklin County, which is Columbus, Northwest Ohio, which covers a large section that's just south of Toledo, um, Hamilton County, Lucas County, which is Toledo, Mahoning, which is Youngstown, Montgomery, which is Dayton, Stark and Summit Counties, which is the Akron Canton area. Now, these figures don't include areas like Delaware County, Logan County, and Scioto County, all of whom have had rampant inmate deaths 
in recent years. So these numbers are a gross undercount of the tragic situation in Ohio. But when we look at the numbers from Ohio, what we see is that during these 10 year, during this 10 year window, Ohio jails had 180 deaths. 64 of those were suicides. 18 were drug or alcohol related. 87 were due to inmate illness. And one was listed as accidental. Ohio has an average death rate per 1,000 inmates of 1.66, which is higher than the national average of 1.46. And what these numbers reveal is that even though they shortchanged the population data, is that Ohio has a major crisis of mental health with 35% of the deaths being due to suicide and a collapse of the medical care provided in our jail systems with nearly half of the deaths being as a result of poor medical care in the jails. Yeah, so we've talked about this in the past where uh, there just isn't the same type of medical care that you get on the outside of a jail or a prison that you would on the inside. And for some of these people, they are pre-trial detainees, which means they haven't been convicted yet. And although some of them have been convicted and maybe you know they are going up for appeals, um, and in any case, there's obviously a lack of medical attention, psychological help that is, is, is present in the jail system. Can you tell us a little bit about what the pretrial detainee or a convicted prisoner could do? Um, do they have any options? So I'm going to be teaching a CLA on this topic November 11th of, the, of 2020. Now, I'm going to be giving a primer on prisoner rights, including civil rights and liberties that are at stake when we talk about pretrial detainees and inmates serving sentences. Now, you can find information about that CLE on our Facebook page and our website. But as a sneak peek into what I'm going to be talking about, what we need to note is that pretrial detainees have rights while they're in custody as do convicted inmates. Now, the Ohio Supreme Court recently clarified that the method to challenge the convictions of confinement is a 1983 action, 42 USC 1983, the Civil Rights Enforcement Statute. Now, as we've discussed many times together in the past, a civil rights lawyer can advocate for medical care, mental health treatment, and support services for people who are held in jail and the families of loved ones who are suffering under the unsound judgment of jail medical staff, and individuals should contact an attorney immediately to take the steps necessary to protect the life and health of their loved ones. These processes take quite a bit of time, and as we all know, an individual can deteriorate from healthy to terminal very quickly. Um, it's critical to reach out to an attorney early in the process when you find out your loved one is not receiving appropriate medical or mental health care. I mean, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, and it's funny because I don't know that many people have really thought about it to this degree until the pandemic hit. And now all of a sudden, everybody is concerned about whose air you're breathing and droplets that are in the air uh, just from your neighbor. And the these prisons and confinement centers, they are the close proximity. Um, everyone is within close proximity and there's no room to really move them out. So this can be a huge problem. It may not just be COVID, obviously over the years, there's plenty of other things that you can catch from inmates. 
And so you get a terrible sentence of getting terribly ill or maybe even dying of something that you catch while you're in prison. Or if you had a pre-existing condition, you're not getting the same care that you had before. And so therefore you end up having a terrible consequence of dying before your case is even heard. And this is a Sixth Amendment right that is being um, infringed upon by not having the right kind of medical attention. And I know we're going to be talking more about that today, uh, but it's absolutely preposterous that this has happened on such a large scale in Ohio and across the country. That's absolutely right. And it's the Eighth Amendment prevents the government from imposing cruel and unusual punishment on individuals. And the refusal to provide adequate medical care certainly violates the Eighth Amendment. It seems that we have a national crisis on our hands um, in our jail system in the provision of appropriate treatment um, and medical care to the inmates in our institutions. It's really important for the public to exercise their voice and vote for candidates and push for policies that support criminal justice reform and most importantly, bail and bond reform. Everything you're talking about, Erica, can be easily addressed through bail and bond reform, not pretrial incarceration, not high bail, high bond situations, but letting people who have not been convicted of crimes remain free until they can have their day in court. And if they're convicted, then consequences will be imposed. But if they're not, the ending of cash bail can prevent people from losing their livelihoods, losing their families, and losing their health. It's been successful in states like New York and California. And those states have had appropriate responses to the COVID outbreak and the stressors that that has placed on their jail population. Now, Ohio has had some bond reform and released some prisoners, both on a state and local level. However, it's not been far enough. The pandemic has wreaked havoc and killed hundreds of individuals in Ohio's prison system. And it's critical that the the people speak up and say, this is not acceptable. As citizens, we can support the news media as well and its important work of investigating, reporting, and exposing the issues in the criminal injustice system by subscribing, sharing, and discussing the reports, such as the Reuters report that we're discussing today, to spread awareness and ensure that their work continues. Now, Erica, did you see in the news this week that the Danny Masterson case is going to be moving forward after the trial judge denied a defense motion to dismiss the charges based on a lapse of the statute of limitations. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting and exciting development in the law. And, you know, I'd love to hear more about how this has happened, because I know for the longest time, it has just been about, sorry, that was so long ago, it doesn't count anymore. You got to get it in within, what is it, 20 years? Yeah. So it's 20 years. <laughs> Brian is now nodding everyone. <laughs> um, that's 20 years. That's right. Um, so let's, let's talk about, you know, how this is moving forward 
And what famous case recently has made these changes come about for Danny Masterson? So I think some, some context is important and you're right. The recent famous case is the public outrage that, that came out in light of the allegations against Bill Cosby. Now, Bill Cosby wasn't prosecuted for sexual abuse allegations stemming from the allegations of more than 60 women dating back you know, up to 50 years because the statute of limitations had lapsed. In response to that, the state of California eliminated the statute of limitations for sexual assault crimes. Now, a motion to dismiss can still be pursued and was in the Masterson case, even despite this law, because an accused always has a right to argue that the law in particular is unconstitutional as applied to his specific situation, or that a constitutional pre-indictment delay violation has occurred, and therefore uh, the, the prosecution should be barred on grounds very similar to the statute of limitations, but without such a hard and fast deadline, a, a bright line cutoff as a statute of limitations typically has. Now, in this case, the court overruled those arguments and the prosecution has the green light to proceed. This seems like a huge issue for the defense because there's been such a big time lapse. What can the defense do to overcome this mountainous issue of, of trying to find um, evidence to support their case? So we've had a number of cases very similar to Danny Masterson here in our office. And what we've needed to do was really step up our investigative game. Um, in part, we would rely on private investigators, but we also as attorneys had to go out and interview witnesses and really press them to remember what they could, admit what they couldn't remember, and gather all the information that we possibly could about the surrounding circumstances um, about the accuser, the accused, and their relationship at the time of the allegations. Now, after 18 plus years for the Danny Masterson case, the challenge is significant but it's not impossible. As technology changes and memories fade, um, you can still be surprised at the types, the breadth, um, the depth of information and evidence that can be found by asking witnesses to, to try and remember. Now, oftentimes they have to admit that they just don't. Um, fortunately for Mr. Masterson, these allegations arose in the digital era. So there are MySpace records, digital camera files, maybe even data polls off of an old laptop or a cell phone. Um, the benefit in that this arises after the internet age means that some of these records may still be available as opposed to a case from let's say the 70s or 80s where this information is no longer available. However, you really also have to think about how many phones do you have from 2001, from 2003, from 2007? Do you still have that laptop? Do you have any records from 15, 18, 20 years ago? So while there is possible, it's not likely. And the elimination of the statute of limitations really cuts the defenses off at the knees and prevents them from doing their own investigation. Well, you're making me feel like I really need to do a clean out, Brian, because 
I definitely have some old laptops here and some old phones, but I, I've been thinking about getting rid of them for years. <laughs> um, well, luckily I would say don't do that, Erica, because they may have critical information on them that can put you in a particular time in a particular place that keeps you away from a crime scene. I think you're right. I mean, it, it, it's something that I should uh, hold on to now. Maybe I'll be putting those in safety deposit boxes instead of in the recycling. I think that's a that's a brilliant idea. And you know, the thing is with with these elimination of the statute of limitations, you you never know when there's going to be an allegation against you, and especially with crimes like sexual assault, where it's the accuser's word against the accused's word. The accused no longer has the benefit of uh, the presumption of innocence. We know that that's been eviscerated by movements like the Me Too movement. So what, what the Me Too movement asks is that we just believe accusers at the outset. So what the accused now has to do is say, well, this is my version and here's some evidence to support it. And that's the that's turning our criminal justice system on its head. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it is. And I guess the hope now is going to be that they can show that his relationship with these accusers was consensual and those messages and and, and pictures and whatever they can find are going to prove that. And so that's great. Can you give us a little bit of background on singling out sexual assault as a crime that can always be charged? So in general, the statute of limitations is designed to facilitate justice by ensuring that cases are, are brought before the judge in appropriate timeline so that the injured party can have their justice and the accused can either be acquitted or rehabilitated. It's it's not an efficient policy to allow a traffic a traffic ticket, let's say, you know, a speeding ticket to issue two hour two two years after you broke the law after you speed sped, and it's not efficient. It's not an efficient policy to allow someone to be prosecuted for trespassing twelve years after they stepped on somebody else's property. Evidence is lost, circumstances change, and everybody on both sides needs a clear line that defines the end of the process. So to get around statutes of limitations, prosecutors and plaintiff's attorneys in, in some civil cases can indict or sue a Jane or a John Doe um, to preserve the action for a short period of time. They can extend the statute of limitations and it depends on exactly what the situation is, but they can draw that out a little bit. But the value of swift and public justice is one that's enshrined in our constitution. So there are limitations on how long that can be drug out. But some crimes are so egregious, so antisocial, that society has said, we are going to set aside special rules for them. And the statute of limitations never lapses. Now in almost all states, that is that crime is murder. In Ohio, the statute of limitations is 20 years for rape, assault, uh, conspiracy, sexual assault, minor sexual assault, the sexual assault of a minor, sexual battery, kidnapping with a sexual motivation, and six years for all other non-capital felonies. Now, there, there are shorter statutes of limitations for misdemeanors, but there is no statute of limitations on murder. 
California was one of the first, but not the only state to add rape and other sexual assault crimes to that very limited category of crimes that have no statute of limitations. It will be something to watch as it develops over the, few, over the next few years. You know, we are just now getting into the era where people are, are feeling comfortable coming forward with these allegations, and now they are able to come forward with these allegations. And with the opportunity to make allegations 10, 20, 30, 50 years after two individuals were last in contact with one another, it creates an incredible amount of pressure on the accused and, and really anybody that's ever had a relationship gone sour. And see what you're talking about. I mean, gosh, over that amount of time, if you've been single uh, or if you've been married, but not faithful, um, there's probably a lot of different relationships that you've had. And a lot of people that are just doing, especially when you move on uh, and just like thinking about ways that they can get back at you and what better way than to make something up about what was and get you thrown in jail and ruin your career and your family and, and everything else. That's exactly right, Erica. That, that, that is the fundamental problem here is it, it gives the false accuser the opportunity so far into the future to make these false allegations. When in reality, if you think about the, the policy that many people who support elimination of the statute of limitations, they say, well, you know, children don't have the means to make these allegations. Or, you know, sometimes you're scared of your accuser and you're afraid of repercussions. Well, the statute of limitations is told until the child reaches the age of majority anyways. So the, the earliest that it would cut off is at age 38 for any individual in the state of Ohio. And for any other person, you've got 20 years to get away from the person that you're intending to accuse. And certainly that is plenty of time to get to safety, find a law enforcement officer and explain your allegations to them. How many times do people get into public office and then all of a sudden, or famous, and then all of a sudden these things come out? Well, and that's exactly right. And in many situations, we are talking about not just revenge, but also a money grab. So we are going to keep a close eye on how California treats it. We're going to keep a close eye on the Danny Masterson case as it proceeds and how uh, the, the detriment of these charges being filed 18 years um, and two investigations following uh, the relationship between these parties uh, turns out. So make sure to check back and, and follow the podcast to find out how this case plays out. The last thing I wanted to see if you had heard about this week, Erica, was the new developments in the Breonna Taylor case, where the grand juror who asked to speak publicly has now spoken. Yes, what did the grand juror have to say? I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled that we are still talking about this case because I know so many were disappointed that Breonna did not get justice. What we learned from the grand juror was that the various members of the grand jury did not agree among themselves that, fate, that Breonna Taylor's shooting was justified. Now, remember that the judge released the record to the public 
um, because there was a question as to whether the publicly elected prosecutor had been honest about the proceedings. And what we learned with this recent disclosure was that the prosecutor had only presented a charge of wanton endangerment and that the grand jury wanted to hear more information and wanted to hear allegations that Breonna Taylor had been murdered. And they never had that opportunity. This is explosive news and a total contradiction of the state's line. What does this mean, practically speaking? What it means is that the prosecutor involved his use of discretion and abused his use of discretion in usurping the role of the grand jury and predetermining an acquittal by them in presenting evidence to achieve a particular outcome, the outcome that he and his law enforcement cronies wanted. It's popularly said that a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich for the murder of Jimmy Hoffa. And that's an allusion to the total and absolute control that prosecutors have in presenting all of the evidence that they choose or withholding evidence that they choose from a grand jury. And them being the only party that can present arguments to the grand jury. This is a case that reveals how the prosecutor unethically predetermined an outcome and got what he considered to be justice. His ends justified the means in his mind. So typically we talk about law enforcement officers and how you know, they, they take a lot of liberties with their power and, you know, they shut off their cameras and they, uh, you know, force people to confess and by putting a lot of pressure on them and lying to them. There's testa lying. There's, there's so many different things that we've talked about when it comes to law enforcement officers. And now we're talking about what's happening right in the courtroom. And I'm really curious what does this mean for the Breonna Taylor case? Well, we just talked about statutes of limitations and it never lapses on murder. So this is a, this is a case that can be brought back and represented to the grand jury. Now, elections have consequences and Kentucky voters can head to the ballot box with the knowledge that this prosecutor lied to the public, rigged the outcome, and presented evidence to predetermine what the grand jury did. Kentucky voters should use their voice and influence their elected officials and argue for a new investigation of this case because the statute of limitations on a variety of other charges still have not run and the case can be presented to the grand jury again and again and again until a just result comes out of the grand jury against the officers who conspired and lied and murdered Breonna Taylor. Sounds like we're going to be hearing about this for a long time. I have a feeling that this is a case that won't end soon. I agree, Erica. Now, moving on to our featured topic this week, the Sixth Amendment to the United States Constitution guarantees our right to a jury trial and the right to compulsory process, and the right to confront witnesses, and the right to be informed of the allegations against us, the right to counsel. But the right to a jury trial is the overarching and most important of all of those rights. Now, this right is key 
to the United States Constitution and was enshrined in the Bill of Rights to ensure the American democratic experiment survives. But it's a right that is under attack by prosecutors across the nation, and it must be saved. Why is the right to a jury trial so important? I mean, I know um, as having an ex-husband who is a, a criminal attorney as well, like he would always talk about uh, whether it was going to be a bench trial or a jury trial. And if you can give us a little bit of a, a background on that and, and why it is so important to have the jury. So one of our founding fathers, John Adams, said that representative government and a trial by jury are at the heart and lungs of liberty. Without them, we have no other fortification against being ridden like horses, fleeced like sheep, worked like cattle, and fed and clothed like swine and hounds. The right to a jury trial protects our liberties as much as the right to cast votes for our representatives. Now, few today think that a trial by jury is still that bulwark against arbitrary and capricious use of government power, but it is. There are many places in the world, our neighbor, Mexico for one, where the right to a public trial is not guaranteed. The right to a jury is not guaranteed. And the ability to have other citizens stand between you, an accused person, and the government is invaluable. All over the world, you can be arrested, confined, tried, and sentenced and never see a courtroom or, or an attorney. It was this type of injustice that our founding fathers experienced. And when they were framing the constitution, they sought to eliminate it in our new democracy here in the United States. And that's why it's enshrined in the Bill of Rights. The government must be forced to account for its actions and its desire to take our lives and take our liberty. This is fundamental to our system of government, to justice, and to the existence of the United States. I mean, these are tried and true and lofty ideas. And you're absolutely right. I mean, can you imagine if we didn't have this right? We would be just like any other animal that people buy and sell and do whatever they want. Uh, anyone could say whatever they wanted about us, we could be thrown in jail and rot there or be killed. That's absolutely correct, Erica. The only thing standing between you and me and a black hole from which we could never crawl out of is eight or 12 members of our community. Because those individuals we believe if we believe in the fundamental system of our government, those independent citizens will stand up and say, no, this is wrong and issue an acquittal. And we assume then that the judge won't you know, disregard what they're saying and will actually let you go. And that happens. You know, if, if a jury issues a not guilty verdict, judges let people go. But if prosecutors had their way, they would make an accusation, they would snatch you off the street, they would throw you in a cell for as long as they wanted, 
And that would be the end of it. Well, I think that that was beautifully put, Brian. And I think that it really goes to show that not only do you have the right to have a jury trial, you have the right to have your own great attorney. So for anyone that knows someone that is having an issue like this, um, you should absolutely call an attorney. And if you are in the vicinity of Brian Jones and his team, absolutely pick up the phone and call them because you know there's not there's not many attorneys that are quoted and that teach classes and that stay you know right on the cutting edge of what's happening now and in fact even has this podcast talking about what's happening in the news and what's happening today there are a lot of changes in the law there's a lot of strategy involved with that and you know sometimes it does involve a lot more investigation and Brian and his team know exactly what needs to be done in those cases. So I'll get off of my <laughs> soapbox about you guys. Um, I know you guys are fantastic. Uh, we'll get back to the topic at hand and just, um, can you give us a little more information, Brian, on what is a trial tax? So over the last 50 years, trial by jury has been under attack um, at an ever increasing rate across the country, both in the state and the federal system to the point that this institution, this fundamental building block of our country now occurs in less than 3% of criminal cases. Trial by jury has been replaced by a system of guilty pleas that diminishes almost to the point of obscurity, the roles that the framers had envisioned for the citizenry as the primary protector of individual freedom and the principal mechanism for public participation in the criminal justice system. What the data shows is that those who choose to exercise their Sixth Amendment right and force the government to prove allegations at a jury trial face exponentially higher sentences. Faced with the choice of going to trial and potentially going to prison for decades longer, many accused individuals surrender their right to a trial rather than insist on proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, while this can be traced to many influences, implicit bias is a key culprit, especially when we look at Black defendants who are convicted at higher rates and sentenced to longer sentences than white defendants. That divide turns into a chasm when we look at death penalty convictions. I mean, this is, it's all very scary, like what you're telling us with these stats and how jury trials are going away. And I, I get that they're expensive and they can be, uh, you know, long-term, but, you know, on the other hand, what is the alternative? The alternative is that you know, we're not getting the justice that we deserve as American citizens. So could you give us a little bit more information on a plea bargain? Does that mean that the accused is guilty when they accept a plea bargain? Absolutely not. So a guilty plea to a reduced charge can mean a variety of things. The, the accused was in fact guilty and got a negotiated break or that the accused was being pragmatic and decided that the frying pan was better than the fire. 
In most cases, it's the latter rather than the former. Trials are lengthy, expensive, and the accused can languish for years while waiting for a jury date. And they languish in jail, unable to make bond, watching their life, their family, their career, and their community deteriorate around them. That desperation can lead people to choose the lesser of two evils. Accept a conviction despite maintaining your innocence so that you can get out of jail, or maybe because a time served sentence was offered, or maybe because your mental health has deteriorated to the point that you just can't withstand further incarceration. Empirical studies and exoneration data show that the pressures accused persons face in plea are so strong that innocent people regularly plead guilty to crimes they never committed. This is why if you are accused of a crime, you must hire a trial lawyer, not a prosecutor in defense attorney robes who will bully you into a plea deal based on some ephemeral guarantee that you're gonna get worse at trial. The trial penalty is the discrepancy in sentence that the prosecutor is willing to offer in exchange for a guilty plea and the sentence they intend to recommend and request be imposed after a trial. And to leverage the accused's constitutional rights against him or her is a fundamental violation of the trust that we put in our government officials. You may remember that the Kentucky prosecutor tried to bribe Breonna Taylor's boyfriend with a sweetheart deal. Now, he stood strong and ultimately that case had to be dismissed because there was zero evidence against him. But it's a prime example of how a prosecutor will leverage the threat of extensive prison time for standing for what you believe in and holding on to your constitutional rights. So what can be done to eliminate the trial tax in your opinion? First and foremost, we have to reform prosecutorial discretion. Oversight boards of prosecutors actions are absolutely as critical as police oversight boards. Second, we have to reform mandatory sentencing guidelines. There should not be mandatory penalties for any crime. Judges should have discretion. We trust judges. That's the reason they are judges. They should have discretion to impose an appropriate sentence for an appropriate crime. We have to mandate pre-sentence investigations based on evidence-based practices and scientifically proven methodologies. We must eliminate subjective qualities like the acceptance of responsibility and genuine remorse from our lexicon as we refer to the, the paradigm that is sentencing. We have to prohibit the government from conditioning plea offers on the waiver of statutory or constitutional rights that are necessary for an accused person to make a voluntary, intelligent, and knowing decision to enter a plea, such as revealing confidential informant identities and other bargains that prosecutors use to get people to testify against an accused. We have to change subjective qualities in sentencing, such as the idea of acceptance of responsibility and genuine remorse. 
they're really just uh, placeholders for you know, the, the desire to punish people. You know, there's, there's no objective measure of a person's remorse for committing an offense. We have to prohibit prosecutors from conditioning plea offers on the waiver of statutory or constitutional rights, such as knowing the identity of an informant or becoming aware of bargains given to individuals who are snitching against an accused person that eliminate the knowing and intelligent aspect of it, of a decision to enter a guilty plea. And lastly, procedures must be adopted to ensure pretrial and post-trial sentencing recommendations are not disparate for one, from one another. An increase in the pretrial to post-trial sentencing recommendation should only be made for an obstruction of justice if that is proven at the trial and the development of facts and information unknown prior to trial. Inconvenience to a prosecutor does not and never will warrant the taking of a defendant's life or years of his freedom out of spite. That is contrary to the fundamental tenets of our system against arbitrary and capricious abuse of power. I couldn't agree with you more. And those are, are strong and passionate words about our justice system. And I absolutely believe that you know, these things need to change. We need to really make sure that people are heard and people's rights are kept intact. Well, Erica, I, it's something that I believe in fundamentally. If I had my way, we would not have a system that relies on plea agreements. We would have a system that relies on jury trials and plea agreements would be the exception to the rule. Because if the government can't prove their case to a jury, if a government can't convince 12 people from your community that you did what you're being accused of doing, then the government shouldn't be allowed to remove your fundamental liberty, interest, and freedom. Period. End of discussion. Only other citizens should be able to take that away from you. I absolutely agree. And thank you so much for being so passionate about this subject. And I mean, it is what you do, it's what you live for. And just love hearing your opinions and information on what's happening in the, in the world now. Um, it's been fantastic. So thank you so much for that. You're welcome, Erica. And I, thank you for saying that. And, and thank you for joining me today. Um, and thank you to everybody else who joined us today for this discussion. And if you want to be more informed about police and government account accountability, the trial tax and its erosion of our democracy, and everything you need to know about your constitutional and civil rights, check out the law office of brianjones.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at TLOBJ and all over the internet using our hashtags, no walk, no talk, no blow. We'll be back next week with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in the news about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system, as well as a discussion of the relationship between our civil rights and our civil liberties. Now, Erica, whenever 
my grandfather and I parted ways, he would always tell me, don't do anything I wouldn't do, son. And to that, to all of my friends, I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights because I'd want mine to defend.